0: Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck.
1: Greetings everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation. Beautiful fall day in Los Angeles. You know, I Change things up today, just in focus. We've been talking about witnesses and court and you know, I I want to ask how many people out there know a lawyer? I think there's a lot of people out there that know a lawyer, and their first gut reaction is, oh, a lawyer. (laughs) And there seems to be a a stigma around it at some odd level and that comes with the title. But you know, over the years I worked with some incredibly humbling, generous brilliant lawyers, compassionate, empathetic. And I talk with a lot of young lawyers actually recently who actually come to me and like they've rushed through law school and it worked really hard at getting to where they need to go. And and they're out in the field for two years and they're like, is this it? I was like, what am I doing? You know, which is, I find fascinating because it is a, it's, it's a very interesting transition after law school and, and getting your bar. But my guest today She's a BS from Miami University in Ohio, which, funny, happens to be my rival college. <laughs> so another fellow Ohioan, and I'm very excited about that. This is J.D. from Boston College and Law School. Today, she is a professor at Suffolk University in Boston, where she not only teaches legal writing, but she also focuses and has a scholarship in the area of lawyer well-being, mindfulness, and cognitive sciences of learning. And she's on the forefront of this subject, which I'm super excited she's accepted this podcast interview today. She's also a speaker, has had several articles published, and is the author of The Law Student's Guide to Doing Well and Being Well, as well as co-author of Mindful Lawyering, The Key to Creative Problem Solving. I want to welcome Professor Shalini George. Welcome, Shalini. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I always really relish an opportunity to talk about law student and lawyer well-being and how important it is. Actually, well-being is important to all of us, isn't it?
1: Right, right, right. But we're on a subject that I really believe you're on the forefront of, and I've, I've been watching for many and being in the industry for many, many years. I've seen it crash lawyers. I've seen it really be tough on families, the ripple effect of it. So I, I want to jump in by, you know, I've been doing some research on you, obviously, and the ABA and most state bar associations have identified a wellness crisis in the legal profession. When when exactly did that take notice? Because I've seen it for a long time. When did you see it take notice?
2: Well, in the mid-2000s, like 2010, 2015, there were starting to be a lot of studies relating to lawyer well-being, mental health issues, addiction, and there was a really big study that came out in 2016 that really identified really specific problem areas for lawyers um, in their well general overall well-being. And that led to the creation of the ABA National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being, which issued a report in 2017, really specifically identifying This is a crucial issue for lawyers trying to start a conversation about well-being to eliminate some of the stigma of the challenges that lawyers face, but that they always faced, I should say we, that we always Mm -hmm. faced in private and to bring some awareness to this so that it's not just lawyers or law students sitting by themselves somewhere feeling like they're the only ones who have struggled with burnout or stress or addiction or mental health issues, but to realize that there's something about the nature of law school and the nature of law practice that is making it worse and that suffering in silence isn't making it any better. So it really, mm. with that National Task Force report and, and then the formation of different organizations and scholarship and attention on the matter, it's it's really, uh, I think, having its moment, in that people now are talking about lawyer well-being, just like we're here today to talk about uh, it, which may not have happened ten years ago.
1: Yeah, I definitely don't think it would have happened ten years ago.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I was in the middle of it ten years ago. I wish it would, for my own personal mental health, would have been able to been talked about it because even as a consultant in the legal field, is is as stressful. Not, I don't take the the front. Baton, or the last baton, in the, into the courtroom. But I, I've always wanted to ask someone this question. You know, I think, and I've been thinking about this over the weekend. You, I think, you're the perfect person to ask this question.
2: I hope I have a perfect answer. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's okay. <laughs> Why do you think
1: that the legal system is so stressful? What, what, what makes it so stressful that it, we are even talking about this subject?
2: It's a great question, Juliet, and it's so important that we talk about it so that we can understand, Like, if we really want to make structural changes in the industry to make it a better Mm -hmm. place for people to have longevity in the practice, that has to start with, well, how did we get here? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a couple of theories based on my work and my research. One is that the practice of law is inherently an adversarial process. We're taught Mm -hmm. from the moment we enter law school that there are winners and losers, right? We learn with the case method of X versus Y, person versus, you know, one person versus another person. And there's always a winner and there's always a loser. So there's that Mm -hmm. adversarial mindset that I think can cause people to become adversarial themselves. And that's a pretty negative way to go through life, you know, on a Mm -hmm. consistent basis, Mm -hmm. I think that plays into it. I think generally they're high achieving people who pursue law and have a tendency towards perfectionism and Mm -hmm. feel under a microscope from the moment they start law school uh, with the pressure to perform well in law school. And there is something about law school itself, class rankings the competitiveness of the grading curve, the you know stress over trying to get that best internship and the best job and the most high-paying job, and then all of that just sort of tumbles into the practice of law, where uh, lawyers you know largely are are have been governed by the billable hour, by unreasonable mm-hmm. demands for the amount mm-hmm. of work that people should reasonably be expected to do, and to be able to maintain somewhat of a healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I graduated from law school and when I was in practice, you thought you just, everything had to be work. You know, nobody really talked Mm -hmm. about their families. Nobody spoke about Mm -hmm. things that happen outside of practice. So, you know, you really were kind of forced to separate yourself. And I don't think that's healthy for anyone in the long term either. So not a lot of understanding of the impact of One's personal life, or family life, or other spiritual or religious life, or social life—like mm-hmm. all of those things were not spoken of. You were supposed to leave that literally at the door, and bill, 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 and it's just not a good long-term recipe for satisfaction in one's career. And I also think there's there's a bit of a disconnect in that people. And it's funny you started uh, you started by talking about kind of that. Uh, reaction that people have to lawyers, which is mm-hmm. very, in my mind, very ironic because most of us go to law school because we really want to make a difference, because we want to help mm-hmm. people, because we care about injustice, and we're attracted to the study and practice of law for those reasons. But I think there's there's something that goes on in law school and in practice that sort of changes those internal motivations into more external motivations, class rankings, mm-hmm. jobs, money status, things that, you know, you're trying to keep up with those around you, as opposed to those things that were inherent to you as an individual that maybe brought you to the study or practice of law. So I think all of those things.
1: Yeah. So, so when you say under the microscope, I I like to look sometimes at exact words because that's what I do for a living, right? I I Mm -hmm. have to explain exact words, evidence, phrases, you know, what conspiracy means, things like this. When you say under the microscope, who was watching them? Who was who looking through the microscope for somebody to be under the microscope? Is that the court system? Is that the judge? Is that the head of the firm? Or is it just the culture that's way up in the front end of that? Like, is who's it, looking through the microscope?
2: Uh, I feel like it's all of those people. So, for somebody who starts off in the practice of law, it's your supervisor. You know, you have to kind of get used to your work being torn apart in order to mm-hmm. create what someone is expecting. Let's say it's let's say you're writing a brief, you know, to be filed. Let's say you're writing a summary judgment motion. It's it's for you to understand the law and how to write, but then you have to put your work out for your supervisors to read, tear apart, um, you know, find holes in that. And that that's part nice. of making that piece of work better. But it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so it it can start from there. So from a supervisor, to a boss, to a partner, to opposing counsel, to your client, to a judge, uh, to an appeals court, it's all of those people looking at Mm -hmm. that piece of work and and trying to find fault with it, right? That, again, going back to that adversarial process, um, preparing for oral argument, you know, somebody's going to sit and pester you with questions to get you ready for that oral argument, all designed to to find the the faults or flaws, and I'm not saying that 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 the goal of that process is not a bad goal. The goal is to produce the best possible work. But there's there is I think an inherent perhaps lack of understanding. Like for example, lawyers are not trained on how to give pe- feedback. Um, how to bid, build resiliency mm-hmm. in employees? How to create that growth mindset of "I'm going to, I'm going to help you learn how to make this better because this is going to make you better." It's usually just red pen or you know right. deleting things or so. Mentoring, leadership—you know—none of those skills are things that are taught in law school or certainly in the workplace. So yeah, I guess it's not surprising then that there can be some negative impacts of the way that law is, is practiced and managed in that way.
1: Right. And, you know, talk about perfection. I mean, it's, it's something, interestingly enough, I, once I got into being a consultant and the perfectionism that's expected the, you know, I would get my invoices sent back to me that because a period was missing, you know, it would be like, you know, as an outsider, you know, I'd learned, you know, what that perfection was and had a hard time sometimes just out in the world why everybody wasn't, at that level of perfection. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about how that stress really affects like the brain and the body? It sounded like you've kind of had some background on that.
2: Yeah. So stress, we're used to thinking of stress as a mental thing. Like it's really bad for your, it causes mental health issues. And that certainly that's true. Stress can be incredibly draining and can lead to burnout, but stress also can lead one into a really negative loop of behaviors, both mental and physical. So you Mm -hmm. get stressed because you have a deadline or a difficult client or a law school paper or exam, that stress. So there's, I also want to always say that there is something, there's good stress, right? A little bit of stress, Mm -hmm. a deadline or a meeting or a presentation or a podcast interview gets you to (laughs) think about being prepared, Right, and having so it, it kind of forces you to get some things done as opposed as opposed to just having amorphous thoughts about things. But what ends up happening when we live in stress long term is chemicals are released in the brain. The chemicals that are released in our brain are the chemicals that prehistorically caused us to get ready to flee danger. So it's the same chemicals mm-hmm. that were released, you know, many, many years ago to help us evade danger. So and the cortisol and these other chemicals that are sort of coursing through us ignite the fight-or-flight response in our bodies, that gets the adrenaline going, really prepares us to escape the danger, but it's without you know, recognizing that the danger we're sensing now is a danger of a deadline or a danger of you know, an event. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not the kind of danger that we once faced. So if your fight-or-flight response is ignited, but you're sitting at a desk Working on something, you're not even you're allowing your body to work through those chemicals the way that it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. So then we start having maybe you don't sleep as well, you don't make good choices about what you're eating, you skip going to the gym because you're stressed. Those are all ways that that you would or your body would ordinarily try to work through um, mm-hmm. some of the stress. So then you get more stressed, and then you get a backache or a headache, and then more chemicals mm-hmm. start pumping Definitely. through your brain. And then we start to have problems with memory and concentration and attention to detail that negatively impacts the work that causes more stress. So it just becomes a really negative loop of behaviors, both mentally and physically, that leads directly to sometimes um, to drinking, to mental health issues and certainly Mm -hmm. to burnout. You know, burnout, I think, is probably the number one, one of the number one issues facing lawyers right now.
1: Yeah, I would have to. I, I know I know a lot. Paralegals, lawyers, you know, the whole whole gambit. But, you know, for our listeners, I don't know if they really understand the lawyer being the center pole of how many people they have to answer to. That's another thing that I found so fascinating is that, like you said, they have to answer to the judge. They have to answer to their client. They have to answer to their team. They have to answer to their law firm. I, find very few jobs that have to answer to so many people that are tearing them down. (laughs) That's where it was so odd for me how there's so many places of of stress it can get in. But do do you think a lot of lawyers are undiagnosed with depression?
2: That's what the studies show. They've been, you know, since 2014 with law students and 2016 with the Hazleton study, and then, a lot of studies since then, we are seeing significant numbers of lawyers who are now saying they're depressed or telling um, people that they are seeking treatment. So, yeah, I think the numbers have been going up as people are willing to acknowledge and discuss these mm-hmm. issues. There was a time where many states, you know, you couldn't admit that you got treatment uh, for fear of not mm-hmm. being admitted to the bar. So that kept people in silence um, for a long time, but I think 37 or 38 states, something like that, have changed that requirement um, so that that they're not asking about mental health. Only 38. Yeah, it's we're working on it. There's a lot of advocacy in that area, but yeah, the the idea of what your character and fitness is, we're trying you know trying to change that. Mm-hmm. So yes, I do think the numbers have been going up maybe partly because we're talking about it and there's there's mm-hmm. a feeling that you can you can self-report now that that you have an issue or have gotten treatment mm-hmm. or need help whereas before there was there was so much stigma associated with asking for help that i think right. was part part of the lawyer persona right was you're really strong and you work really hard and you're really smart and you don't need help that was you know that was right. like really a sign of weakness and i i think that's it's slightly changing. I mean, there's still a plenty of places where it hasn't changed enough, but we're having the conversations, which means at least, you know, we're having the conversations, which is a big step right. forward from where we were. So
1: as I've seen like great lawyers and I've seen other lawyers that have been stressed or I, I mean, I've a lot of times I've been able to see through the anger because it's, you know, if they're angry or they're aggressive or insecure sitting on the outside the table versus inside the law firm. I've been able to identify like this person's really stressed or this person's really you know struggling with something. But how do you work with young lawyers for that not to transition over to witnesses, especially in litigation? Because litigation, in its own, and, and I know I don't have to tell you this, but for our listeners, it's its own world, it's its own bubble. And if you have an attorney that is really in this place mentally and emotionally how do you work with young attorneys to start the conversation that that will carry over to witnesses and how do they, how do they, they have such a stressful situation. And then you've got witnesses that come into that exact, they're only there to be torn down. Right. They're, you know, they're crossing to examine to just be discredited and made right. you feel like crap. Right. How do you work with young lawyers and to start prepping them for this arena?
2: Well, that's a great question, obviously. So I think my approach to a lot of this is the old, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help mm-hmm. anyone else. So great. I think helping law students and young lawyers understand that they're stressed, um, even coming to terms with themselves as individuals and being able to assess their own condition, I think is is one step in that process.
1: Mm, that's great
2: you know, it's funny. So on Wednesday, I'm going to be guest lecturing in, a, in another class at Suffolk, which is a prosecutor's clinic. And they've asked me to talk to them about secondary trauma and well-being. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, sort of hits on what you're talking about. So I'm going to talk to these students about, you know, well-being generally, but very specifically, like what is compassion fatigue and what is secondary trauma? And so thinking about, I think that really is asking them to think about, what are the people who they are helping in court, what are those people going through, and how does the stress of, and trauma of other people's situations impact you so that you can understand mm-hmm. how to assess where you are, how can you develop habits that help you manage, understand the stress, get help when you need help, so that you can then be that better lawyer to be able to deal with, and not just witnesses. I mean, I've seen lawyers be so awful to law clerks, to other court personnel, right. and I just consultants, <laughs> yeah. And I never, yeah. you know, I was I was a law clerk many years ago after I graduated from law school, and it was a very enlightening experience for me to watch really bad lawyering um, and bad lawyering, which included being rude to people in the courtroom. It just it doesn't it mm-hmm. doesn't help you in the long term, and so I think part mm-hmm. of this conversation about you know making sure that you know how to help yourself is asking people to think long term. Not like what's in the moment, or like I, I have so much to do this week and I'm just completely stressed out. So, stepping back from the week and looking a little bit more long term at what one's commitments and responsibilities are, so that you can plan for how to manage the stress of certain events, so that you are not um, taking out your frustrations uh, on those around you, which is not helpful to you and it's not helpful to them. So I'm going to talk to the students, you know, on Wednesday about um, some breathing techniques, which sounds non-impactful, um, but is incredibly impactful.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. and Meditation, breathing, meditation, mindfulness, breathing yeah. journaling, yeah. you know, getting in touch with your body, just generally like understanding when you have signs of physical stress and what does that mean? Like, why does your back hurt? Why is your head? Why does your head hurt? You have a nagging feeling about something. Don't ignore it. Let's try to figure out what that is. So walking them through a few exercises that talk about um, these kinds of things. And I think that's the thing that's impactful is that this is happening in a classroom, for example, or if I go to a law firm and do a training Mm -hmm. session with lawyers, it's like what you give space to is what is seen as important. So I'm Mm -hmm. really... Really um, excited that in the last few years I've been invited into spaces and I've had the opportunity to talk about these issues head on, and 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 give that message that okay, law the, we care about you in the law school we care about more than what you do on your exam we care about you know mm-hmm. all aspects of you. Or for young lawyers, or um, I spoke to a group of non-lawyers last week, the same sort of message, like we care about your performance is actually directly impacted by your ability to take care of yourself. So if we can stop thinking of self-care as self-indulgent and think about self-care as essential to performance, you can start to maybe get people to 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 understand and want to give a little bit of time and space to those conversations.
1: Yeah, I like that. uh Self care is not self indulgence. That is, um, that's a great. I might just be, end up being the title of this podcast.
2: <laughs> like,
1: <because laughs> well, it's it's so lot, true, yeah. and that's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's that's good because it's um, it's coming from the witness prep side, you know, of my world. I can tell when a, a lawyer's really centered, and you know,
2: yeah,
1: and multiple ways on how they treat a witness and. And why witness, you know, health is so important. But I, I also saw that you in an article you published. I think it was in Bloomberg. A study that published the Journal of Healthcare concluded attorneys are twice as likely as working adults in the U.S. to have suicidal thoughts. I, I, I was a little blown away by that number. And how does a trial lawyer, lawyer that's, you know, in this state, you know, really say I'm going to have to give up my career to get help? I mean, uh, you know what? What do you say to that?
2: That's a really tough one. And I want to be really honest that my work is really not in the area of suicide prevention. Um, because once somebody mm-hmm. gets to that point that they're contemplating self-harm, it's really too late for a lot of my work, which is about healthy habits mm-hmm. and, you know, Early ground on. grounding techniques and, you know, learning to manage little stresses before they become Big stresses. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to. I just want. I don't want to offer advice that I'm not qualified to give. Yeah. But sure. I think one thing that I think about when I see those kinds of statistics is still how do we get to people before they get to that place? So that I, I think is really important. Structurally, there need to be changes. So sometimes I get pushed back when I speak to people. That, you know, if it's the industry itself, if it's the way that law firms run, if it's the way that organizations ask their lawyers to work that causes a lot of the issues, why are we putting the onus on the individual to to cure that? And I hear that, and I understand that, but I think individuals have to do what individuals can do at the same time that we're push, pushing for change um, in the industry. So one thing is, is, yes, to start thinking about small things that we can do before we get to really big issues. Part of it is about the industry understanding that we need to make help available. We need to make it okay for people to say, I am particularly stressed right now, or I have I worked this many hours and I can't take on this new assignment, or um, you know I need to have one of the things I advocate for in one of those columns that I wrote is tech off hours, like really understanding that people need to Mm -hmm. be able to unplug and be they can't be on call seven days a week, twenty four seven. I mean that's the kind of work environment that does lead to burnout and then. to to other really serious issues. So having the conversation, putting the statistics like that out there about, you know, some of the really dire um, places that many lawyers find themselves in, I think getting that message out, I hope will start to to lead institutions and organizations and law firms to think about changing this typical billable hour structure or making accommodations like, you know, twice a month, you get a weekend day where no one's going to contact you. And you don't have to feel bad about it. That's the way, you know, that we're going to give you like, we're going to reward you for not connecting instead of it being like, Oh, oh, this seems like I'm taking the easy way out, you know, like really trying, trying to change the structure and the mindset around things, which is a big task, obviously. Um, But something that I, I, I deeply, deeply believe in.
1: Yeah and I'm so happy to hear this because you know I mean like I said going through as a, even a consultant you know it the ripple effect is is tough it's I'm going to I'm not going to icing put any icing on it, it you know I I've, I've had a lot of abuse from from situations based on their stress and at the same time it's I th- think when younger lawyers understand the ripple effect of it, not only that this is what's happening to them, but what the ripple effect can be. I just think you're in such a great place to, like you said, put the mask on, but you're still giving the mask to somebody else, you know, next to you yes, and helping them at the same time, because you have helped yourself. What, right. what, what the result of helping yourself means, right. it means getting your witnesses prepped correctly, doing a better job, winning for your client, you know, then, you know, so I, I'm, super excited that you're just in this arena more than anything else but you know from a transformation perspective you know you talk about lawyers needing to exercise their mental physical and brain health how how would you first define lawyer well-being and then how would you suggest to someone that they exercise someone like mental health or brain health physical is pretty easy
2: Well, physical is easy, but it's actually one of my favorite things to talk about because I think people don't often make the connection between brain health and physical health, right? So we think everybody knows, no surprise to anybody that going for a run or going to the gym, you know, or taking a class is good for your physical health. But what we Mm -hmm. don't think about often enough is it's, it's really important for your brain health. So if we think about you know what do, what do lawyers offer? We offer the ability to think and argue and persuade and solve problems and be creative and you know it's all it all everything that we offer is in our heads essentially. We're not performing surgery, we're not building houses, you know. We don't have a technical skill like that. But nobody ever really thinks about, well, how do you put yourself in a position to think better, to think more creatively, to think Mm -hmm. in a more focused fashion? And so like Mm -hmm. exercise is really proven to be like going for a walk or going for a run sometimes is the thing that unleashes a creative thought or a bit of inspiration, mm-hmm. I like to tease people when I talk to them, like, there's a reason that inspiration strikes in the shower. And then, you know, not that I want to picture right. anybody in the shower. But <laughs> there is something to that, that's that when right. you s- stop directly focusing on something, and you do something else, that's well, when your unconscious yeah. brain, you know, works through Energy things. You, yeah, and particularly, exercise is particularly good at that. I have a slide that I like to show my students that has a researcher out in Illinois who, you know, did a composite of student brains, uh, an MRI of student brains sitting for 20 minutes before an exam or if they walked for 20 minutes before an exam. Mm. And you can see the blood flow and the neurons firing in the brain that's been walking for 20 minutes so you know, instead of sitting and I have changed to a desk, I've just got to finish mm-hmm. this brief, or I have to get through all of this, you know, all this correspondence. It might actually, I want, I want, to, I want to challenge people to rethink that process and to say it might actually be better for my work, not just my body, but for my brain and the work I need to do for me to think about doing something physical. So physical health, I right. think, is is very important. But to go back to your broader question about brain health. You know what we eat is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. We don't think about it very often. We think again about food as being good, you know what what's necessary for our body without considering that the brain uses twenty percent of the calories that we consume. The brain, mm-hmm. our brains are working twenty four seven, even when we're sleeping, our brains are working. So for something that's so critical and crucial and uses a fifth of the ener- energy that we consume, Why don't we think about the things that actually give us good energy and that help Mm -hmm. the brain, you know, in the thought process? Similarly, sleep directly Mm -hmm. impacts brain health. So all of those things, physical health related, but also Mm -hmm. really critically important to brain health. And then beyond that, you asked, I think, in your question about what do I think lawyer well-being is, I've really tried to ground my work in some of the reports um, that I mentioned at the beginning. So the ABA National Task Force report, for example, defines lawyer well-being as six dimensions, that there are six dimensions of well-being, emotional, physical, intellectual, um, occupational, social, and emotional. I think I said Mm -hmm. one twice, but, um, it's so hard for me off the top of my head, but you get the idea. So I think most of us are very, or tend to be very one dimensional, uh, law students and lawyers, very, very work focused and very, you know, that, that until I do X amount of work, I'm, I'm really like not entitled to, to think about my social Mm -hmm. connections or my, um, emotional needs, you know, how can I go see a therapist? I have to bill X number of hours so if, if we're very one-dimensional, we know that that's a recipe for burnout. So I like to talk about thinking of all of the dimensions and really understanding that if you cut yourself off socially, if you uh, – oh, spiritual well-being, that's the one that I, I missed. If you are a person who is spiritual but you just don't allow yourself the chance – to, to think about to go to church or to go to your, you know, whatever group you're involved in or to spend some time meditating in nature. If you cut yourself off from all of these things in favor of work all of the time, that, again, is a recipe for mental health issues. Um, if people turn to alcohol as a de-stressor, you know, that's never going to be a good place um, to be either. Also bad for your brain health. So it is all so connected. And that's what I, that's what I wrote about in my book. And that's what I talk about and really try to bring to people that, and that goes, goes back to the self-care, not being self-indulgent that we're, we're used to thinking about. And if I were to start talking to people like yoga is excellent, you know, you should do yoga. Everybody Mm -hmm. will say to me, you don't understand, you know, you don't know what my life is like. I can't afford, you know, that's so silly. It just seems so, so frivolous. But if we can start to weave these things together, that that you can actually think better and perhaps perform better by mm-hmm. attending to all of those other dimensions of your well being, that's a win win. You know, you are better off. Your work is better off. Hopefully, the witnesses and other people that you're talking to are going to be better off for your not having cut yourself off from everything else in your life.
1: Right. And I think once once I'm hoping once we can get a generation of lawyers that think this way, they're going to pass it on to witnesses because that structure you just talked about for, for lawyers is exactly the same kind of structure we need for witnesses. Yes. You know, we should have lawyers talking to their witnesses about there's meditation, there's yoga, there's chiropractic, there's food, have your witness do this before trial, you know, because they believe in it. And I think that's, you know, as I learned right. at a very young age working at the gap, if you believe in the genes, you will sell those genes more than anybody else. Yes. and I do I think once somebody gets into the yes. you know the belief system because that's that's the goal here, right? The goal here is for everybody to be in a healthier place, especially in such a stressful, you know scenario. So what do you do?
2: Well, it's I was just going to say, um I, I take that <laughs> I take it very seriously that I have to be. If I can't take care of myself, I have no business talking to anybody else about Mm -hmm. well-being. So I go, I work out every day. That is my number one stress reliever. It's a social thing for me because there are five days, five days of the week I go to the gym and I take a class and occasionally I teach high intensity interval training classes. I have some good friends who I see there. And going to the gym, even during COVID, we ended up uh, doing the classes in the parking lot. Like I, I just don't. I, I protect that time with everything I have, mm. and I run. I really like to run. I my students will sometimes know that I had a good run when I come up with a particularly creative or interesting exercise to do in class. Got that flow going? Yeah, yep. they're like you creative, went for creative run. Creative flow, energy. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I, um, I wrote, wrote about this a little bit in my book. I'm very in tune with my like my best flow. I do like to do work Mm -hmm. in the mornings. So um, I get up, I walk my dog uh, and then I go to the gym and then I work as much as I can. Like in the time that I, that I know works well for me, I protect, there's certain things in my schedule that I protect as much as I can. So working out is one of them. I'm very interested in, I I love eating healthy, um, and that's not to say that I don't love a donut every now and then or some potato chips. (laughs) They all have their place, but I really, really love, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I really love fruits and vegetables, and so I do spend time planning my meals and trying to make sure that I don't find myself in the situation where I'm starving and exhausted, and so I'm just going to grab whatever it is.
1: That's a big part of it too. It's like working yeah, it all night long and, you know, spending, yep. you know, two and three days awake, you know, that exhaustion. And then here comes the the candy bowl. It's, yeah, uh, it's too easy. You know, in the war room. It's way yeah. easy. So I, I know you started this, um, it sounds like you started a walk and talk mm-hmm. group yes. with your class. Uh, I just, I found that so endearing. Just, just give me, a, we're going to have to wrap up here soon, but just give me a quick little snippet of what that is. That's so great.
2: So I spoke at the Suffolk orientation this year and about well-being, and I had a chance to introduce some basic concepts to the students, and then I announced to all of the first-year students that every Wednesday at 4 o'clock, I would go for a walk. I would you know, be in the lobby of our law school at 4 o'clock every Wednesday. I said rain or shine. So far, we've been pretty lucky with the weather, and whoever would like to come for a walk is welcome to join me. So I have had I have had a number of people join me. I wish more did. I find it a battle every week to convince them that they can take, it's half an hour, four to 4.30, and I have some water and a few little snacks to try to entice them to come. <laughs> I send out email reminders, and it's like prying them away from their books mm-hmm. and the library, but it's always a wonderful, wonderful, you know, whoever's with us. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. my teaching assistants come, uh, sometimes other professors come, and it just ends up being we go for a half an hour walk where we literally just get to know one another, I talk to my students about whatever it is that is stressing them out, whatever they want to talk about. Sometimes it's restaurants, sometimes it's another class. Sometimes it's just talking about our dogs. I mean, anything and everything, mm-hmm. but just trying to make myself available for that contact outside of the classroom for them to understand that we care about them outside of the classroom for them to have an outlet for a little bit of conversation and to experience that maybe that half an hour break where they get up and walk around and breathe some fresh air is, is really beneficial Mm -hmm. to them in the long run.
1: That's fantastic. I, I really hope that somebody will just continue to pick up on that and, and start putting that because talking and communicating is, is just such a huge part of it being able to you know really, I just had to, guy on the other day who was a um, first responder and talking about how talking has really healed him and helped him and how the stigma of being, even asking for help as a first responder has been so difficult. So so my last question to you is a question I usually ask witnesses, but do you think that healing is a choice?
2: I do. I do. Um, I mean, that's a tough one for me. You surprised me with that one. But I will say, you asked what what do I do? and i will I will say that I've had some difficult circumstances myself over the last five years or so. Uh, I lost my mother. I got divorced literally at the same time. i had already lost my father about twenty years ago, so when my mother passed, that was particularly difficult. Mm. Uh, I got divorced after having been married for twenty something years, and the pandemic hit and any number of other. Um, challenges. And so I, it was tough, it was tough and I did find myself. So I I also, you know, went to a very good therapist. So in the vein of, you know, what what do Mm -hmm. I do to take care of myself? I I like to, I really like to tell people that as well. So I think the habits I had helped me get through some of that, but I do think there's, you know, it, it, I don't want to imply that everybody can walk their way out of depression. That's not the case. There are times when right. one needs really yes. expert, serious help. But I think mm-hmm. there, there is a place where we, we can have a choice in viewing other people's circumstances. There are always people who are worse off than you are, and there are always people mm-hmm. with bigger, bigger challenges. And so mm-hmm. if you can put it in a little bit of perspective and, and kind of ground your thoughts in a positive direction – I think that, that that has great power.
1: Well, well that's, uh, we're going to end it there. Where where can
2: people find you? At work is the easiest place to find me, George at suffolk.edu. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I am on Instagram as lawyer underscore well-being. And maybe you can, we can post some links or something, but yeah, I'm pretty easy to find.
1: We'll We'll do that when we get the uh, podcast here comes up. Well, I want to thank you. I'm super, super grateful. i'm we have such parallel tracks. I'm trying to even get myself to, you know get out there and talk to people about you know how are we passing from lawyer wellness to witness wellness. so i'm I'm really grateful that you came and talked to me today. I'm just I, I thank you very much for that.
2: Thank you. I, I really appreciate
1: the opportunity. Yeah. So I like to leave a little note on the end here. You know, you never know who you meet. Everybody's got a story and even a high powered lawyer has got a story. They're human beings. I always tell that to every witness or anybody I work with. Lawyers are human beings. Judges are human beings. We're all human beings and we all have stories. So don't forget, go out and spread some love. I know the Thanksgiving holiday is going to be coming up here soon and just take care of each other. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at JulietHuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.